Hello, this is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. Welcome to this podcast archive, which features a conversation with Chief Bob Richardson from the Battleground Washington Police Department. He also was featured as a presenter at the Northwest Justice Forum, and we'd like to encourage you to check out that annual forum and hope you'll enjoy this informative interview with Chief Richardson. Thank you and see you in the near future on Restorative Justice on the Rise. Good morning everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host of the ongoing dialogue series which is intended to be a conversation forum for anyone who is interested in the topic of restorative justice and beyond. And tonight we have a great uh, speaker that's going to join us in just a moment. He's an honorable chief in the state of Washington, and I'll say just a bit more to honor and welcome him in a moment. Before I do that, though, I just want to outline for anyone who's new joining us tonight, first of all, again, a warm welcome to you. The way that we roll in this forum is such that it's, it's formatted that you can ask live questions. We prompt that around the half point of this conversation, which lasts about an hour. And sometimes we go a little longer if we're inspired, but usually we try and stay really on point and being respectful of everyone's time. The cool thing also about this space is that we know your name, and so if you raise your hand and you want to ask a question, we can talk as if we're in a room together almost. So it's a bit like being in a conversation town hall style format. And to, to ask questions tonight and every time we get together, just press 1 on your telephone keypad. I also want to point your attention to the fact that this is becoming an iTunes podcast. And the philosophy behind these materials and all the recordings over the last three season, seasons is that you have as much right to share this information, and we hope you do, as anyone else. So if you have a community that wants to know more about what's going on with restorative justice, how it works, uh, we hope that you'll use these tools, these podcasts, the recordings, and some of the resources that we're building now and in the future to help support you in whatever journey you're taking <clears throat> uh, towards uh, restorative practices in your community, in your families, and in the systems that many of you are a part of and serve. Restorative Justice on the Rise is in its third season, and again, the website is restorativejusticeontherise.com. We'd like to thank our co-sponsor, the Peace Alliance, and for private foundations for the support of the upgrade of our podcast and website. We're really excited about the upcoming work that's happening this year and many of our upcoming speakers, and I hope that you'll join us again next week and in the near future. And without further ado, I want to talk just a little bit again about this very special guest that we have tonight and honor him. His name is Chief Richardson, and uh, that, that is Chief Bob Richardson. He recently presented at the Northwest Justice Forum, which I also want to thank the Northwest Justice Forum for all the work that they do. There are a ton of people behind that um, big conference that lasts about three days that has plenary sessions, uh, hands-on workshops, as well as keynotes. So it's, it's a very much interactive conference and it happens every year in June in the Northwest. 
So Chief Bob Richardson is here with us tonight, and he presented a compelling plenary about the work that they are doing with the Battleground uh, Police Department, as well as, of course, other organizations in that area, in Battleground, Washington, the state of Washington. He was appointed as the police chief in January 2011, and he currently oversees a staff of 22 commissioned officers and four professional staff. Previous to that, he worked for the Irvine Police Department for three decades, and he went on to, he came on to the, uh, like I said, the battleground <clears throat> police chief position in 2011. He has a wide range of law enforcement experience, including patrol, field training, traffic officer, crime analyst, criminal investigations, and so on. He has a rich experience and he's also a, a, an active member of many boards and commissions throughout Clark County, Washington, including the Clark County Public Health Advisory Council, the Regional Emergency Services Agency Board of Directors, Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, Prevent Together Coalition, and many more. So obviously, this honorable man has spent a good portion of his adult life serving to support our youth. And we just are really excited to have you here tonight, Bob. And I just want to say something about um, how much of an honor it is to, to have people that are representing law enforcement and corrections with us on these shows. I always find that you provide so much insight into how this actually works and are really in the middle of being dedicated to a day-to-day -day process that, um, from my perspective, seems to be having profound results. Um, and just recently, as I was talking to you in the green room, Chief Richardson, we hosted Senator Jamie Eldridge and Police Chief Robert Bongiorno from Massachusetts on a town hall. Um, They're mobilizing around a bill that they're trying to pass out there in Massachusetts that would provide pre-sentencing alternatives um, for juvenile correction or law enforcement, excuse me, um, in restorative justice. And so I'm not going to say any more. I've been already talking too much. Uh, we would <laughs> love, to hear, <laughs> love to hear from you about what inspired you to get into this field. And then tell us a little bit about what you think about restorative justice um, and why it seems to be such a good plan for your department. And then we'll talk about the ground level. But let's start out sure. with, with your own journey. Thanks for being here. Uh, no, I appreciate you, and thank you for having me tonight. And uh, thank you for the listeners that are out there tonight. Uh, you know, obviously, like you said, uh, you know, I've been in this job for uh, 30, 34 years, and that's pretty amazing when you're only, you know, 25 years old. But uh, I have been been around a little bit. Uh, I came up here to Battleground, Washington. <laughs> we had a we had a community here that uh, had a lot of issues going on. As far as you know, we had a heroin problem, uh, something I hadn't seen since the uh, you know since the 1980s. We had a, a low uh, uh, our average per capita income is lower than the state average. We had a lot of kids that are. Uh, uh, case uh, cases in social services, and we had some suicide issues where we had kids that were committing suicide. So they had a lot of things going on in our in our part of the the country, even though it's a little small part of it. And uh, so I got involved in this. I was actually asked to participate uh, 
by Clark County Juvenile Court, and they wanted a police chief to serve on uh, a steering committee to kind of roll out GDAI and, and kind of get stakeholders together around the table and discuss how we could all work together to uh, make the criminal justice system in Clark County, which was already geared towards restorative justice, but even make it uh, even better than it is. So that's kind of where I am right now. And do you have anything you'd like to share about initially even at, I guess it would have been 13 year old, years old that you got into the profession? Was there a story <laughs> that inspired your service in this, this field? And you've obviously well, given so much to it. I, I think uh, like my people my age group, uh, we, we grew up on uh, Adam 12 and police story, which for most listeners, they don't even know what that is. But, uh, you know, my brother and I are both police officers. Two of my three brothers are police officers. We, uh, uh, we enjoy our jobs. We're still both working uh, a lot later than most people would think that we would be working at our age. But uh, it is a, good, a great profession. And if you like to deal with people and, uh, you know, the best, uh, best uh, lab in the world to see how things work and what works and what doesn't is to be a police officer and get to go out there and drive around and observe human behavior. And I think that's what gives me the insight to kind of say, okay, th this is what works, this is what doesn't, and this is the way I think the world should go. So it's just my, my insight, my opinion, my view, my values, and trying to make our, our community better and, and make the kids grow up in a better environment and make our criminal justice system more responsive to the needs of our, our community. Wonderful. Well, I, I know that um, you were, of course, a presenter, a featured presenter, and you guided a, a plenary session, like I said, in our introduction tonight at the Northwest Justice Forum. And sure. you, um, you focused mainly on, of course, restorative justice from a police standpoint. And you say you understand that without a commonality and consistency in the practices of each agency, for example, schools, police, and the courts, we will not see success in our goal to provide effective restorative justice to the youth of our community. And it's important for juvenile offenders to want to improve themselves and their futures. You say it's our duty to foster that desire through positive interactions. So if we could, let's discuss a little bit for many of us who weren't able to sadly attend this year's forum, um, could you tell us a little bit about what you presented and, and what, what you were explaining and sharing with folks in that, in that session? I, I certainly can. I can tell you that, uh, you know, get, again, to back up a little bit and talk about an over, overview of a community, you know, we're a typical uh, uh, community like you would find anywhere in the United States. Uh, you know, we're about 18,200 people. Our per, our per capita income is about 69% of uh, the statewide level. Um, our food stamps or nutritional assistance increased about 221 percent between 200, 2007 and 2011 because of the economy. So, uh, you know, you know, we were impacted, uh, you know, drastically by uh, the uh, economy. 25 percent of our uh, what we call Part One crimes are domestic violence offenses, and out of that, 22 percent of them, uh, the victims are primarily children. And so we had this issue going on along with, you know, we had a heroin issue in our community that we still do. And in uh, about 2012, which is about a year after I got here, we had, uh, we started tracking suicides because we started seeing more and more suicides in our community, especially among young people, either suicides, attempt suicides, or threats of suicide. 
And to give you an idea, in 2012, we had 53 suicide threats, 18 attempts, and three actual suicides, of which two were teenagers. So, uh, and one was relatively young, uh, 11 years old. So we had a community that was facing a lot of challenges, and that kind of spun off into, uh, as a community, what do we need to do to not only address our mental health issues within our community, but also the criminal justice issues within our community, especially the juvenile level, because they do overlap. A lot of these kids that are in the ju juvenile justice system that are incarcerated have underlying issues, either drug or alcohol abuse or mental health issues. So that's kind of what uh, my background or the, what the foundation of my presentation was. And then we had a discussion about how we work with the school district and what we need to do as far as a community and especially for a police chief, things that I have to do like how do I address training issues to make the uh, juvenile justice system better uh, for our officers, uh, policies and procedures, how that impacts uh, how we respond to issues and how that ultimately results in whether or not kids end up in the juvenile uh, system or not. And so those are the kinds of things that uh, I was looking at at my level. Mm -hmm. I hope that's not too much. So. No, that, that's great. Um, one of the things that comes up for me and maybe for our circle of participants tonight perhaps is an interesting question that comes up in many cases when we speak with, you know, these great people who are within law enforcement and that's, well, what about the resistance <clears throat> to restorative justice? Um, you know, maybe there's a, one of your officers, even my good friend, Officer Greg Ruprecht, who admittedly was completely skeptical of sure. restorative justice in Longmont, Colorado. He has become basically a spokesperson for it now, and he's an extraordinary officer, um, again, out of the Longmont, Colorado Police Department, and very open about his skepticism and then his complete 180 after seeing it in action. So could you share with us a bit about how you work with people who are skeptical in your own department? Um, I know you probably Absolutely. don't want to be proselytizing, but you probably have a, a way of working with that, right? So right. tell us a little and, and bit I about think that. I absolutely will. I think, uh, number one, I think, uh, you know, the officers that we hire today are completely different than the officers that we hired 30, 35 years ago. Uh, and in that context, remember when I got hired back in the 1980, our job was to put people in, in jail. And, you know, the more people you put in jail, when you had your per, uh, performance evaluations and when you're being rated by your supervisors as a good police officer, you know, those things, those things were important. In other words, the, the, uh, the front end putting people in jail was important. I think now as time has gone by and we've hired, we hire a different type of police officer that really is much more engaged in trying to make the place, the world a better place for everybody. And they're not so focused on the front end of the criminal justice system, but I think they're getting more focused on the, what the end result is. And with that being said, I think as a police chief, you have to go in and you have to train your officers uh, on what restorative justice is, talk about what adolescent brain development is and why kids do stupid things and why we all did stupid things when we were kids. And then you have to go into and redo your policies and procedures and wrap those around for input because that's what we did. We, we actually rewrote some of our policies on how to handle juvenile arrest and 
when to, when to uh, take somebody into custody and when to transport them to juvenile hall. And I think that uh, that is part of uh, uh, one of the things that we did as a police chief. The other thing we have to do is a, as a police department, we have to take whatever those values are and, and restorative justice is a value of ours and build it into the framework of the agency. And in other words, make sure that it's reflected in, in their personnel evaluations, the promotion processes, the field training program that we put kids through when they come out of the academy, that all of that has to be ingrained when they're a brand new police officer. So ultimately, that's the world as they see it. And they didn't know that it was any different prior to them being hired. So that's how I have approached it. And I, quite honestly, we're a relatively small department, so it's very easy for me to get and talk to people one-on-one -on -one when you only have 23 total officers. It, this would be a much bigger challenge for an agency when you start talking about 100, 200, or 1,000 police officers. But I think the concept is, is the same. So t tell me, in law enforcement, what do you think the, the primary misconception of what restorative justice really is? Um, what, what, what is the primary misconception, if that's possible? <laughs> no, it's very, very, uh, the, the number one complaint from police officers is that this is soft on crime, that we're not throwing kids in jail, uh, and uh, I think you have to step back and say, uh, again, that, hey, the, the, it's not the purpose of the police to punish people. It's our job to process people and get them into the criminal justice system. That doesn't necessarily mean that every kid needs to be uh, locked up and the key thrown away because there's plenty of studies that show that arresting kids impacts their long-term uh, successfulness as, as a, a, an adult, a productive member of society, and that the recidivism rates increase if we keep arresting these kids. So you have to tell people that if somebody is truly a threat to public safety, there's not going to be any change. If a, uh, a uh, juvenile brings a gun to school and threatens to kill uh, students, they're going to get arrested and they're going to get sent down to the detention facility till they're evaluated and make sure that they're safe to release. So for those kinds of offenses, you're not going to see the change. Where you're going to see the change is the very, you know, the minor, uh, the misdemeanor cases, the fist fights, the school disciplinary issues that we sometimes get uh, dragged into, uh, the shoplifting. Those are the kinds of cases where kids will get released right away to their parent Unless, again, it's, uh, they have certain criteria like a threat to public safety, they have an arrest warrant, or if it's in this state, if it's domestic violence, then we don't have any alternative. We have to make a physical arrest. And, and so I think that's the biggest misconception among not only police officers, but I think members of the public. Everybody thinks that, oh, wow, well, we're not going to lock people up, so we're not going to take care of the crime problem. And we have to educate everybody that, hey, we provide services at the front end and divert money into services at the front end instead of locking people up, and the end result is a better result. Mm -hmm. So that, mm -hmm. that's how we have to sell, sell it. Can you tell us a little bit about how accountability is very much at hand in restorative justice? Yes, I think uh, especially even I can tell you through, uh, through what we've been doing, you know, Restorative justice, maybe a, you've really a got... Practical, sorry, uh, maybe a practical sure. example even. Like of how, how, how is accountability held up? Okay, well, I think what, the way accountability is, is uh, held up in our level it, it is to make sure that once this case gets into juvenile court, that the victim and the perpetrator and the community all have some input into uh, 
holding this person accountable and repairing the harm they did to the victim and then focus on the offender and hold them accountable. And that can be in many different ways. That can be uh, community service where they go out and they work at a food bank or they go harvest uh, you know, vegetables at a food bank to give to the poor. There's many things we do at our level other than punishment to get these kids uh, and hold them accountable for their actions and plus counseling services and we also have community uh, weekend community reporting centers and we're working on a nighttime reporting center where the kids work with their probation counselors and also uh, other counselors at uh, boys and girls club right now to to have these uh, discussions about you know what they did wrong make better life choices those kinds of things so there are things that we're doing at the the very local level we just had a class here uh, recently um, called ART, which is anger regression training, where we talked to kids that have lost their temper and engaged in fights and assaults, where we actually had the probation department and our school resource officer co-facilitate these, these classes. So then we have these offenders that are uh, mandated to go to them. And actually, at the end of the, end of the day, when it was all done and the classes were over, most of the kids realized that, hey, you know, uh, reacting spur of the moment to something is going to get me in trouble, but it also had the ability to talk to a police officer in a very uh, non-threatening manner in a classroom and just have discussion about, you know, life skills and making the right decisions, those kinds of things. So I hope I'm answering mm -hmm. your question, but those are the kinds of things that we're doing at our level. Mm -hmm. That's great. Actually, it leads into um, actually a question from that was pre-submitted from one of our participants tonight, as well as just my own wish for us maybe to go into a bit more of the ground level of how this process operates um, as it relates to your department. Um, let's just, okay. you know, maybe you could pick an example of a story of a person who, you know, that it, from point A to point Z, so to speak, if you would. And then uh, we'll go into that question, the first question of the night. Okay, well, I'll I give you a, a, an example that helped reinforce to me why we need to go to restorative justice and juvenile detention Great. alternative alternatives. Uh, we have a, a school resource officer that works our high schools and our middle schools. And in the state of Washington, we still have on our statutes, it's unlawful for any person to willfully disobey a school administrator or their agent, like vice principal, a, a staff member of the school, and you can be arrested for a gross misdemeanor in our state. So let's say you have a child that's in middle school, relatively young, that's just refusing to go into his classroom, is kind of running around the hallways for 30, 35 minutes or so, and ultimately the school administrator who's trying to deal with that calls the school resource officer over, and the school resource officer who knows nothing of this kid's history also starts talking to this kid and finally after about 15, 20, 30 minutes grabs the student by the arm to walk them to the uh, principal's office so they can call a parent and the, uh, the juvenile student turns on the officer and there's a, uh, tries to punch him and there's a little bit of a scuffle and ultimately we arrest this kid for this gross misdemeanor, put him in handcuffs, take him to the principal's office, take him to this police station and ultimately we release him uh, to his parents. Now, you know, that the officer didn't do anything wrong. That's the way he was trained. The school administrator didn't do anything wrong. That's the way they were trained. But at the end of the day, did we, we fix the problem? And I, I would argue, no, we didn't. In fact, we probably made it worse. And especially uh, once you kind of step back 
and think about it. Here's a kid that probably has some kind of uh, uh, educational needs uh, that aren't being met, maybe some uh, mental health issues that aren't being met. And so would it have been better uh, for us to just call the parent and say, come on down to this hallway and, and, and get a hold of your child and take control of the child, and then we'll do referrals to some other third party to get you help and see what the underlying issue is and whether or not uh, this uh, student needs to be on some kind of education plan, those kinds of things. So for me, we did the wrong thing and uh, you know it didn't work, but in the long run it did work because it did force me to rewrite our policies and procedures to outline, okay, this is a better way to handle these things in the future and then do some training for our officers and bring in people from the outside to talk to uh, our officers about restorative justice and how the juvenile justice system works. So those are things that we did at our department. Mm -hmm. Is there any chance that you were able to go back to this youth and try a process with that youth or was, uh, you know what I'm trying to ask? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the process happened at the, the uh, the juvenile court at the back end because what I did is I call over to juvenile court and say, hey, this is what happened. This is a case that's coming to you and it needs to be adjudicated uh, at the front end without where, where it's diverted and that's ultimately what happened. It got diverted and, uh, you know, I don't know the, the exact outcome, but I know that, hey, this student, uh, you know, gets referred to the proper person to help them with their issues and so that's, what, that's all we care about. And mm -hmm. you know, in the, and then the other thing we're working on long term is we are working with the school district on a grant that they can have crisis intervention counselors in the schools. And when we have something like this happen in the future, we call a crisis counselor and they come and they take over. So it's not even a police problem. I, it's a school disciplinary issue and it stays in the school system and we don't get involved. Unless obviously if the students started assaulting uh, school staff, then we would intervene because we have an assault, but it wouldn't be anything to do with what I think are more school disciplinary issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, great. I, it's just such an honor to have you here again tonight with us, Chief Richardson. You, you're with the Battleground Police Department that's in the state of Washington, um, a little bit north and a little bit east of Vancouver. Is that true? We're kind of northeast of Vancouver, about 35 minutes uh, north of Portland, uh -huh. and out my window, uh -huh. yeah, out my window I can see Mount St. Helens. So we're kind uh -huh. of between Vancouver and Mount St. Helens. So before we go into opening up the lines for some live questions, I also have some fantastic pre-submitted questions from our group tonight. Thank you so much for being active with those questions. And um, I just want to ask though, are there any organizations that you would like to point to tonight in your community, uh, websites or just their names or anybody that you'd like to acknowledge that's doing this, this work with you in that direct community in Battleground? Well, I think, uh, you know, obviously your Battleground School District, they're, they're doing a lot of efforts uh, uh, for, for getting grants, especially on this crisis intervention councils we're looking at. We have, uh, you know, uh, the, our juvenile court system, if you get on uh, their website, they have a whole page on what juvenile detention alternatives initiative is, what's restorative justice, and they have links to that. And even on our website at the Battleground Police Department, we have some links to different organizations. But we have many, many different, uh, you know, we have a, a suicide prevention coalition, we have a drug and alcohol prevention coalition, all these things have started up in the last couple of years, and we're all, 
all working for the same end goal. We're all right, taking expertise right. from different, yeah, for different community members and working towards uh, end goals. So there's 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 resources out there. So do you have a coalition of sorts, or let me just say, like for example, in Massachusetts or in Colorado, um, it's not uncommon for there to be an actual community organization. Um, such as Communities for Restorative Justice in the right. Boston area, and then Longmont Community Justice Partnership in Longmont, Colorado, and there's others, of course, across the nation. And they act as kind of a, the glue, uh, the cohesive glue that par you know partners all these great branches um, together. Um, do you have anything like that in your immediate area? I'm, I know you do in, in the state of Washington, but. Yeah, I know we, you know, I think the closest thing that we have that I think is is uh, probably encompassing all of this now is that, uh, the Northwest Justice Forum and their website, which is really kind of a, it's just a collaboration. It's not even a formal organization right. where people get together and they put on this fabulous uh, forum every year with all these uh, uh, experts. And I think that, that uh, that's a good resource for people that want right. uh, training uh, that's relatively inexpensive and has a lot of good people that are there giving practical experience. It's not theory, it's practical on the ground, boots on the ground uh, experience on how they're working in their communities throughout Northwest, uh, the Northwest United States. So I think that's, that's it. But I don't, we don't, go ahead. Sorry, uh, excuse me, but I want to point out to our uh, folks tonight that that's Northwest NW justiceforum.com, northwestjusticeforum.com, NW Justice Forum. Um, that's the website. And then I know that uh, Nor Resolutions Northwest is an right. excellent orga organization that, was re that represents at that conference every year and is, is probably one of the primary organizers of it, although I know there's a lot of people that are into it. Um, and uh, even tonight, we have some of the presenters from the conference with us, <laughs> lo and behold. <laughs> so uh, just honoring all those folks out there in the state of Washington tonight for and Oregon and the Northwest in general for all your work. Um, I want to go in, if we might, Chief, to some questions. And I want to start with a question from Rohan and uh, then open up the line. So if you have a question for Chief Richardson or a comment that you'd like to make, please press 1 on your telephone keypad from here on out and we'll try and get to you. Uh, Rohan's question is a really good one and it ties into um, the bit that we were talking about around how things really work on the ground. Uh, Rohan asks, we're a fledgling RJ program in a small community. What are the key ways we can build relationships and buy-in between our nonprofit and our police and sheriff departments? And also asks, any, pitfall, any pitfalls to avoid as we get started in these relationships? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is identify, this is just how we did it in uh, Clark County, identify, identify who the, the key stakeholders are for each agency you, you uh, want to work with and get them to the table and make sure it's people that are at the highest level in the organization that can actually not only uh, can actually implement, change and implement policy. So, so to give you an example, our steering committee for our group includes the county prosecutor, the sheriff of Clark County, myself, uh, a school superintendent who represents the superintendent association for all the school superintendents for all the schools in Clark County, social services, there's somebody from uh, 
the defense attorney, uh, defense attorney establishment. So there are people that are rep representing the defense attorneys that also need to have buy-in, not just prosecutors. So you need to have uh, people at the table and you need to educate the steering committee first on what restorative justice is and what JDAI is. And I think that's where you start as far as getting them involved because once you get them on board, and we also have a, a, obviously a judge from the judicial system, so there's a lot of players that have to be out there. You have to get them all together. You need to educate them on what restorative justice is, what JDAI is, and then that's where you start. And you also want to have a clear MOU memorandum of understanding that lays out what everybody's role is and a very clear mission and value statement of what the what the end goal of your organization is. And I think if you start there, that's a good start because in the long run, if, if the sheriff or a police chief or somebody, the county prosecutor or a judge says, we're going to change something, it's going to get done. So I think that uh, that's where I would start as far as uh, an organization. And you don't need a lot of money. I think people get hung up on money. What you need is a, just a lot of people's time. So people's time and, and I think uh, giving people clear goals and guidelines and a vision of where you're going. As, as far as pitfalls, um, I think, uh, again, one of the pitfalls is we constantly fall back that we can't do anything without money, and I don't think that's uh, true. I think you can, uh, based on what I've seen, you can divert money, especially if you can close, uh, if you can reduce beds in a detention facility, and you can move people around to do other things. So there's things you can do that we've done that don't take a lot of money. And uh, we just, you know, take money from savings in other places and move it around. So that's that's what I would think. Don't get hung up on the money and say we can't do anything because we don't have any funding because you'll never get anything done. That's that's great. Thank you. Great answer and great question. Thank you again, Rohan. Um, Chief Richardson, on that note, do you have any statistics or evidential results? that you would like to share with our live listeners tonight. Um, a lot of times it seems like if you have nothing else, if you have a little bit of proof from organizations that have already been doing this, um, by just sharing those results, like you were saying earlier, the, the diversion from incarceration, sometimes that's a little hard to quantify, but it certainly has merit, right? And we know right. that in, in some programs, that have been established for three to five years, we're seeing recidivism drops that drop your, uh, drop your jaw from you know, uh, as low as 8% in the Longmont um, program that I've been referring to. So uh, share with us a little bit about your thoughts, um, if you have any stats or anything else you'd like to share, some results that have really been profound for you. Well, I think uh, especially when it comes to our uh, juvenile detention demographics and uh, I'm just kind of glancing at some paperwork I have here on my desk that, you know, what we look at is the number of bookings by race to make sure there aren't any racial disparities and whether or not uh, we can uh, uh, reduce uh, the, uh, uh, the, make sure that people that we're incarcerating or booking into our juvenile detention facility reflect our community and aren't overrepresented or underrepresented because that, that kind of tells you, hey, are our policies working as far as putting people in who really needs to be in juvenile detention? And, and also it validates our screening process because we actually have a screening instrument that's point-driven point that is developed by juvenile, the juvenile court that they just go down this uh, assessment tool and based on the score that tells you whether or not somebody's going to go into detention or get released. 
So it takes uh, it take it's 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 neutral, and that's what uh, we look at. So we look at those kind of statistics. We look at the what the average uh, daily number of people that are in detention, how long they're in detention for, uh, those kinds of things. And so I can tell you that just kind of glancing at them, uh, it looks like. Um, we, ha we have reduced our, our juvenile detention population, and I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what it is today, but I know that we are leaning towards closing some of the mods over a juvenile detention facility, and, get, and with closing those mods, then hopefully you can redirect staff and funding to services at the front end. So I can tell you that that is currently working. And uh, you know, and then we track, yeah. So we tra and we track other things. There's a ton of statistics that are tracked. I don't know if they're on their website or not, but if somebody needs some kind of statistics, I certainly can get them from uh, juvenile probation and show you the reports that they generate uh, as part of their JDAI grant. No, that's great. Thank you. Is there a best way to reach you that you prefer? Um, could you share sure. that with people tonight? Yeah, if somebody would uh, need some information directly from me, just uh, email me directly. And my email address is Bob, B -O -B, dot Richardson. R I C H A R D S O N at City of BG, that's Battleground BG dot org. Super, thank you so much. Uh, another question in from Conchetta. Thank you for this excellent and pertinent question. Um, asking, does Washington have state restorative justice legislation that gives a statewide legal option that opens up conversation to help? the restorative justice program spread? And if so, how can other states do so? And that is a question that I may not know the answer with, but uh, I can tell you that you know, we have been using restorative justice concepts in the state of Washington and in Clark County for many, many, many years. And uh, mm -hmm. if I would have to get online and look and see if there is specific legislation for that. I can tell you that you know there are some things that we need to change as far as what things that I think impact our restorative justice system and I alluded to one earlier is the fact that our mandatory domestic violence arrest policy for 16 and 17 year olds needs to be changed uh, because again if two brothers are fighting and one is a primary aggressor in the state of Washington we don't have any choice but to arrest that 16 or 17 year old and book them into detention because that's what the law mandates. So I think that's one uh, one thing. That if you have something like that in your state, that you might want to start with something like that, because I think that that uh, goes against the restorative justice concepts, and probably in the long run, uh, probably hurts uh, hurts the family unit and the and the relationship of everybody. And there's alternatives that would be much better than making a physical arrest. So mm -hmm. that's that's one thing. I think another thing that in our state. Uh, another thing I alluded to is this uh, disobeying a school official this is a gro gross misdemeanor. I think that we need to rewrite that law and make it apply to uh, uh, adults that maybe come onto campus and are disruptive, but it shouldn't apply to students. Uh, students that, that you know, for the most part, they either are committing a different crime or it's a or it's a school disciplinary issue, and so I would like to see that that law rewritten because I think that also puts kids into the juvenile justice system uh, uh, that shouldn't be there. So that's a, a second thing. And I think the third thing that just talking with uh, different people in our, in our you know, law enforcement and judges and attorneys 
is we need to uh, rethink uh, our, how we represent defendants, juvenile defendants in, in our state where the defense attorney represents the client. He represents the juvenile, and in our county, he's appointed by the court, and he does not represent the family. And I think we need to retweak that a little bit so when that defense attorney is in the criminal justice system and working in the criminal justice system with a juvenile, especially in juvenile court, our families tend to be uh, spectators and aren't involved in the process because that's what their legal can of ethics is. He's got to deal with the client, and he can't share information with the family. I think we need to broaden that approach a little bit so that defense attorney can have dialogue with the family so it's a, the family is helping make decisions in that juvenile court. So that's, that's three things that I would look at that I think we need to look at uh, in any state. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. And I just want to invite anybody that is um, perhaps aware of any legislation that might be on the table in the state of Washington, if you feel so comfortable to speak up about that, feel free to press 1 on your telephone keypad. It's always interesting to hear what's happening in each of our states as well as on a na national level. So you're welcome to chime in on that piece as well. And I'm just going to go back to another question here that um, I think is, we've just had a, a ton of great questions tonight. Thank you again to everybody who's participating in this process. And um, this question relates to, on the other end of things, um, if there are any trends with programs inside of jails or prisons, especially from independent nonprofits, um, and also if there are trainings that one can go through to learn how to deliver a successful restorative justice program through their business or nonprofit. And thank you, Jaya, for that question. Wow, that's, you know, that's one that, you know, I work uh, primarily uh, at the front end of the system. I don't work in the back end, but I can tell you, just based on my experience of going and looking at site visits, uh, if you go to uh, uh, the, you know, Portland area, you go over to Spokane, Albuquerque, New Mexico, they're all juvenile detention alternative sites, and they're all, they all have fabulous programs that push services out to the front end for uh, many, many different services. Uh, many of which are done by uh, nonprofits, uh, third parties. So I, I think I would tell people to get uh, talk directly to like Albuquerque, the, uh, the county around Albuquerque, uh, and and look at their system. Uh, they have all kinds of uh, ideas, especially for kids that are uh, can't live at home anymore and are kind of in transition, and so they're living at a kind of a, uh, a, a, a outreach or a house where they live under supervision and they teach them to cook and oh my gosh they kind of teach them to manage a checkbook and a checking account and there's so many uh, groups out there that are doing so many things that I couldn't even imagine all of them but uh, I can tell you that those are where I would look. I would look at Albuquerque, New Mexico, Spokane, and Portland. Mm -hmm. And like, like we had mentioned earlier, uh, Resolutions Northwest as the, a part of your question, Jaya, about the training part of things, um, right. certainly they are a great resource for pinpointing where you might want to go with uh, bringing someone in to, you know, to help facilitate a process to do a, a setup um, in order to be, become more aware and educated on how it all works. I also would highly recommend uh, the Restorative Circles group that is a, a global group 
I believe that Dominic Barter, who is the primary, um, he calls himself uh, not an apprentice. He, he has apprentices all over the world, um, and he has many people who have trained with him in creating circle processes, which are uh, one of the primary parts of uh, the restorative process. And I believe he may be in the Seattle area at, you know, at some point this year. I can't confirm that um, off the top of my head, but I know that there's quite a few folks on tonight even that have worked with him and apprenticed with him. So that's another recommendation. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, another question, Chief Richardson, that somewhat relates to your end of things here is um, regarding the, the, the restorative justice training that you spoke about earlier for law enforcement um, and wondering about if it is included or suggesting that it needs to be included, a training program, um, a RJ training program in the police academy curriculum. Is that something that exists at this point? or you know, that, being considered? That is a great question because I just had a conversation about that uh, earlier today. Most of the police academies uh, teach very little about the juvenile justice system in, in the actual police academy. They don't really teach a lot about uh, adolescent brain development, what restorative justice is. They teach more what the process is for arresting and processing a juvenile. And that's uh, that's uh, in our state, uh, among uh, many other states, is so. The, the answer to your question is, and there was actually a uh, escape, escapes my mind here. There was actually a, a somebody did a national study on what how many hours of juvenile investigations police officers get state by state in the police academies, and in some states it's absolutely zero, and in other states it's you know maybe eight hours. Is, I think eight hours is a good a good day. Um, for most other places, and then there's some other states where they actually do two or three days. So um, to answer your question, yes, there needs to be more in the police academy, but there also needs to be more in the field training uh, program, and that's what I'm working on currently, is to add, add uh, even if we have to add another week to the police academy or the field training, is to have uh, people come in and speak uh, about restorative justice, adolescent brain development, um, uh, ACEs, adolescent, uh, you know, experiences that uh, adolescents experience in their life that make them more prone to be engaged in criminal activity, uh, you know, alcohol, drug abuse, uh, suicide, parent, suicide attempt, suicide, parents that uh, commit suicide or, or alcoholics. So there's all kinds of information out there that we need to, to go through and push down to the officer level. So when they get out in the field and they go into these homes and they're going to make a decision about what to do, they have a lot more background so they can make the right decision, a more informed decision. So that is what we're working on as far as uh, it, in my department. And then long term, we're looking at doing something very similar to what Portland does. They have a, a program called SIREN where they bring officers in and they teach them all about the criminal justice system. And these are officers that are in service training, they're already working. And they spend several days going through, this is how the, these are the resources that are available in the community, and this is how the system works. We're thinking about doing a mini version of that in Clark County, uh, where we bring officers in probably for a day, because we don't have, uh, you know, there's so many other things we have to teach people. But if we could even go in for eight hours and have different groups come in and talk about what services they have available, 
uh, we're working on that also. So I, I know it's a long answer to your question, but there needs to be more in the academy, more in the field training, mm -hmm. and then more in service training. And, and we're doing that, and a lot of what we're doing is free. We bring in speakers from other entities to come in and talk to us about everything from uh, probation and restorative justice to we just had a, a group come in and talk about uh, how to deal with law enforcement, deal with kids who suffer autism. So how do we how do we interact with kids that are on the spectrum? And so there's all kinds of things that we're doing out there to make our officers have more tools in their toolbox, and that you know don't cost a, a lot of money because nobody has money anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm. I really appreciate that question. Again, an excellent question from Dr. Mitchell. Uh, from the Midwest, and thank you for that. Um, I just want to circle back around. There's been quite a few um, conversation pieces here about how things work that have been really helpful to know um, from your perspective. And simply as a citizen of a community, um, how you know? Let's just say that they're they've been affected because. You know, we know that restorative justice is about stakeholders being um, not just the, directly the, the impacted party, but also the person who caused the harm um, right. and the, the community at hand, right? So right. the community becomes a part of the equation, which in the traditional system is, is really not the case, right? So... Right. If, there's, if there's somebody in a community who is really interested in a restorative justice process and might have been impacted indirectly by something and has never heard of how to get in contact with anyone, doesn't really know the first thing about how it all works, but just knows that they need to you know, do something about it, how, how does just uh, Joe Citizen get involved? And how do they build a relationship with the police department and all the other branches that are the uh, living tree of uh, our criminal justice system. Wow, that's a, that's a good question. It's a big I, question. I, <laughs> it's a big question. And I, think, I think it, it really, um, I think it's really one of the big ones for, for us in the United States because I feel like in all of these great conversations that we've had over three years on this show, there's so many people that just don't know where to turn um, to plug in. Right, right. I, you know, I, I, I like to give, give you an example. The, the, the student I was telling you about that we ended up arresting for disobeying the school administrator, I sat down, I sat down with the parents and listened to them because they had concerns, and, and rightfully so. I mean, I, I think they, they understood the end result I, I also understand. You know, I also empathize that they probably would have liked a different, different end result, and I and I agree to that. And we had a big discussion about, you know, Paul changing policy and, and those kinds of things. And and we did, we did, uh, we listened to them, and we and we did change our policies. And and so I think for a police chief, my point of view, I want community members to be able to walk into my office and say, hey, I don't like this practice. And you need to be open-minded enough to sit down with them and say, okay, you know, A, explain to them that there's certain things we have to do because the law mandates it. But there's times where, hey, we're not always right. And, the, you know, police departments, we, we're, we need to step up to the fact that, hey, we can do things better. And sometimes we have to step back and say, hey, we made a mistake or that we're not doing, the, uh, 
the, the right thing and, and engage the community and change policies where we can. So I think that's, that's part of it. Um, you know, it's the tough, you know, the criminal justice system, especially the juvenile system, is so secretive. It's almost, uh, for, and a lot of it's got to do with this, you know, the laws protecting the, the juveniles, but it is a very secretive process. I mean, even, in, even a police officer who's been around 20, 20, 25, 30 years doesn't always understand it, so I certainly can't imagine that a, a citizen understands it all. So, again, I think we need to reach out to our community and have more discussions about what restorative justice is. We have to have more, uh, more uh, education to parents on what adolescent brain uh, development is and why kids do things. With, you know, we get frustrated with kids and go, why did he do that? We need to understand that, hey, it's, it's biology. You know, there's a, there's a reason why these kids do these things. And I think parents need to have some education in that. And then we have things like citizen police academies where we bring citizens in and we teach them about how police work is done. and. We do those kinds of things. Those are another good way to have a dialogue with parents and go, hey, this is what, what the, what the uh, restorative justice concepts are. These are how we uh, deal with juveniles. This is why they're, they're dealt differently than the adult system because I think people have, a, have a, uh, trouble grasping why the juvenile justice system is so much different than the adult justice system. And quite frankly, any police chief will tell you neither one is working right just by looking at how they historically how they worked we need to fix that so i think people we need to bring people to the table and they need to understand how things work and where their talk their tax dollars go and why they go where they go i think if you have people more engaged mm -hmm. that way so that's how how that, i we think we need to do it i really appreciate that you bring up the brain science part of things because um it that that point actually is a very substantial one as it concerns the, the supportive um, per se argument for restorative justice because of the fact that our youth and uh, you know their brains aren't developed even in their early 20s fully and so if we're if we're throwing kids into an incarceration cycle and we all know that there's a school to prison pipeline that we're trying right. to address here um, if we really are thinking smartly and in the neuroscience department of things, we know that, that that's a major indicator of why we shouldn't be just uh, blindly sending them off. And so thank you for bringing that part of it up. I'm, I'm no neuros neuroscientist myself. However, <laughs> I know that, that that's a fact that uh, we have to look at very carefully and also use as uh, proof as to why this is such an important system to continue to develop. So I, as we move towards our closing tonight, Chief Richardson, I'd like to circle back around to the possibility that you might share with us what you might see as, as a success story um, that you, you know, any, I know you shared one story tonight. Um, if you have another one that you'd like to share in concluding tonight and any, any um, closing thoughts. And then I'd, okay. I'd like to get, give, a, give a shout out again to our co-sponsors as well as the Northwest Justice Forum. I think that, uh, can, I can regress for just a second. That the, Please. There's a report, report out, it's called If Not Now When. It's a survey of juvenile justice training in America's police academies. And it's uh, by an organization, strategiesforyouth.org. So if somebody wants to uh, actually is interested in that document, I have it. But uh, they, if somebody wants to know exactly what the breakdown of 
juvenile justice training is in every police academy across the United States. They've, they researched it and published a report in February 2013, so it's relatively recent. Um, I think uh, to answer your question about what I think a success story is, and it's for our community, it's not so much um, you know crime related. I think you know if I, I can, you know, we had a tremendous problem with when I got here of uh, again of suicides in our community, and it was a significant problem where we had uh, three we're a community of 18,000 people, and we had three suicides in a year, two of which were juveniles. One was 17 and the other was 11. So we had those kinds of issues, and we had uh, 53 suicide threats and then 18 attempts, and many of those were uh, uh, young people, you know, under 21, 18, 15. So we, we had a tremendous problem in, in, in 2012, and so what happened is we got together with the school, and the schools brought in a expert on teen suicide, and they did, in the, we got to give the school district credit, they did training for their staff and for parents to, to reach out and look for signs of uh, depression in their kids. And we also did training for our police officers, and we continued to track this. And we went from you know, three suicides in 2012 to, to zero in 2014. Suicide, suicide threats went from 53 down to four, and suicide attempts went from 18 down to one. And that's that's within you know so that's within the first six months of 2014. So to me, that's a significant impact. How we got there, I can't say it's any one thing, but I think it's a lot of dialogue with the kids in our community, parents, school officials, and the police that recognize there was a problem and there's something we need to do about it. And that something was to find resources, make resources available to people, but also educate parents. And, and, and students to intervene if they think that somebody's got depression, to not be afraid to speak up and say something. So to me, that is a success in our community. Mm, very much so. My goodness. Well, I'd just like to invite any closing thoughts further, if you have any. Um, Chief, it's just been a pleasure. Sure. Any closing thoughts, oh. or shall we just roll into thanking our co-sponsors tonight and a few more resources for people before we leave. Well, just, just really quick that if anybody needs anything, give me an email and I'll, I'll call them or we'll email back and forth. And just remember how important this is to our, our, our kids and our communities because they are our future. And don't let uh, uh, the lack of funding scare you away from trying to change things because we can all change things if we work together. And that's really my closing comments. Mm. Wow, those are profound closing comments too. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm not going to elaborate on those, but it's so true that we really can change things, and we often find that the money comes after we begin the process, um, and sometimes sooner than later. <laughs> so tonight, though, I, I want to go back to uh, acknowledging the Northwest Justice Forum, and in particular, Matthew Hartman who is a part of the Clackamas County Juvenile Justice Department. Uh, he runs a restorative justice program in that department. He is one of the primary movers and shakers behind the Northwest Justice Forum. And they are a co-sponsor of this mini-series uh, highlighting some of the presenters from the Northwest Justice Forum, which was held in Washington this past June. 
It's held every year annually, and I strongly encourage you to go to it. Like, like we said earlier, it's a hands-on forum. Um, there's plenary sessions. There's a lot of great people, not just from the Northwest, but from all over the nation. It's nwjusticeforum.com. I'd also like to point your attention again to Re uh, Resolutions Northwest. Um, they can be found in the Portland, Oregon area, but they're uh, definitely a Northwest-based organization for any training needs you might have. And then like Bob said, get a hold of him if you have any questions particular to law enforcement. Um, he provided some great stats tonight as well as that report that he has in his hands. I'd also finally like to acknowledge someone up in Seattle who is on with us tonight, Andrea Brenicki, who works with the Mayor's Office and is the Director of the Restorative Justice Branch of the Mayor's Office of Seattle. And her great work in restorative justice as well as the fact that she was also a primary plenary presenter at the forum itself. So I just want to thank you all for being uh, the participants that you are. I hope this is a fulfilling experience, provides you education, tools, and resources, and we hope to see you in the near future. Next week we will be talking with Melinda Sonnen, who was also a presenter at the conference that we've, we've been mentioning tonight. She's uh, with the Northern Idaho Juvenile Justice Department. She'll have a lot to say, I'm sure, that will be useful from a correction standpoint um, as well as law enforcement. And join us again in the near future. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, your host. Really great to see you tonight. Thank you again. This has been Restorative Justice on the Rise and honoring Chief Bob Richardson of the Battleground Police Department once again. Good night all and thank you.